Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Well, hello again. This is G. Mark Hardy. I'm here with Ross Young for another podcast for you for helping you out in the area of CISO tradecraft. Hopefully you found these useful and we're going to continue to add to your knowledge and nice little bite-sized pieces so that you can get on with your workday with a little bit of extra value. So today, Ross and I want to talk about the concept of access management and how do that, what does that mean? What's involved in that? Perhaps some of the implications and the tool sets. And perhaps we can find that it is going to be useful in your environment as well. So, of course, I guess the first question is, uh, Ross, what do we mean by access management? So access management is about managing the technology assets that we purchase in our organization to ensure they're secure. Right? You can't patch all the devices if you don't even know what all the devices are. So having an effective software inventory tends to be the first start if we're going to have a good vuln management program. And you know, it, it's such a fundamental, but it gets really, really hard. You go to every organization, this is something that is very common to struggle with. Yeah, and, and, and let me zero in on something you had mentioned and see if we can expand on that. You would talked about having a complete software inventory. Do we limit it just to software or do we also expand that to hardware? Oh, that's a great point, right? You're definitely going to need the hardware as well. Uh, if you have an inventory of all your laptops, you would check that once a year to see if, hey, somebody has stolen a laptop or a laptop has been effectively uh decommissioned and taken off our network. So you can use that for taxes to show that this uh, was decommissioned and you can write off taxes around accountable property, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think what we're looking at is mapping that in a grand scheme to the prioritized controls that we get from the CIS controls. So a quick little sideline here is several years ago, it was the uh, consensus audit guidelines, which are the first output from the working group that was chaired by uh, John Gilligan, who is the CIO of the US Air Force. And the consensus audit guidelines brought together several dozen entities that produced a series of control sets that numbered to 20. And for a while it became known as the SANS uh, 20 con security controls or the SANS top 20, et cetera. Uh, and it wasn't because SANS wrote them or developed them, but SANS contributed their high bandwidth website to be able to allow for the availability and the propagation of that information. Well, it was kind of interesting, as I tell people, that perhaps one of the reasons that the term the SANS Top 20 wasn't the best is that there are other organizations that are in the business of security certifications and the like, and they really did not necessarily want to recommend what they potentially could view as a competitor's solution. For example, if General Motors came up with a manufacturing excellence standards for vehicles, would Ford really want to use the General Motors excellence model? Yeah, maybe not. But by renaming it and 
essentially turning it over to a nonprofit, the Center for Internet Security, which is available at cisecurity.org. They are rebranded as the CIS controls. There's still 20 of them. We're up to version 7.1, but the 20 also dropped out of the title because there's been some discussion of either adding a couple controls or perhaps dropping the non-technical ones. Well, the reason for that diversion is to help people understand that if you hear the mention of CIS controls or critical security controls or the like, this is not some little fly-by-night model. This has been around for a decade and it really represents excellence in terms of security. The first two controls, which are considered basic controls and they're prioritized, are inventory and control of hardware assets and inventory of control of software assets. So Ross, as you pointed out, if you don't know what's on your network, if you don't know what's running in your network, how could you possibly manage to secure it? And of course the answer is you can't. And so really then the whole idea that you brought up with is the first thing you need to do is know what you got. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as we start thinking about that, asset management, we really need to think about asset inventories. And this is where we take a variety of tools to provide these functions within an organization. Mm -hmm. So organizations are going to have some type of agent installed on every laptop to do an inventory. You might use something like Microsoft Intune if you're a Microsoft shop. You might use JAMF, which is shortened to JAMF, if you are a Mac shop, those are common tools. And those would come in and do an inventory and say, hey, you have these versions of these pieces of software installed and this is okay or not okay for your environment. Now, Ron brings up, oops, sorry to interrupt. But I was gonna say, it brings up the first question I bet a lot of people are thinking is like, well, what if I don't have an agent on my endpoint? What if something just shows up? I mean, does that mean that they're invisible? Well, there's, other ways we can use to detect things within our network, right? We're not just at one layer in the stack. One way we may look for is when things start receiving IP addresses and they have to register. Mm -hmm. So if we have some type of scanner, and just think of we, we're constantly running Nessus or Qualys to scan all of the IP addresses in our network, we might see that hey, this brand new server got stood up and nobody knows about it and it has some really bad vulns around it. So things like that can be helpful. We can also look for different types of NAC uh, or network access controls where you know devices have to have some type of registration by using known MAC addresses or some type of other authentication mechanism behind them. So what you're saying then is that we really have two sets of inventory controls. One is going to be the ones for the assets we know about, and we'll simply install an agent or, or something that's going to be able to report back to a centralized um, database or reporting structure. And the other one is essentially scanners that are going to listen out there. It sounds like they're mostly passive and that they're just looking for traffic to go by because after all, you attach a device to a network, but it never says anything, then you're going to have a hard time knowing that it's there. But if as soon as it, quote unquote, squawks or does something, you got them, at which point you can then try to kind of hunt it down and determine what is it? What are the vulnerabilities? Why is it there? Why isn't it registered? Which suggests we ought to have an entire kind of process around this for our access management strategy. Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
a number of years ago, hackers started playing around with these things from Hack5 called Ninja Star Land Taps. And what it was is it was essentially a a switch that you could plug in between a internet connection and it would passively listen to any of the traffic going by. So nothing actively beacons and transmits data. Mm-hmm. That sort of system is really, really hard to detect when it's plugged into your network. But there's a lot of things where we would have sensors. We'd have you know, some type of IDS or some type of network intrusion device where as soon as we see something beaconing or transmitting within our networks, It'd be like, we gotcha. You know, you can actually see that here's a device. And so hackers have kind of evolved a little bit to say, well, how might I listen to other devices in the network and try to impersonate them? But, you know, hopefully you have more than one type of tool to, to start actively listening as well as scanning your environment to see what changes are happening. Yeah, and it's interesting because the idea of finding one of those passive devices goes back a long time. I remember way back in, wow, it's probably 1999, that loft heavy industries had come up with something called anti-sniff, which was basically looking for these passive devices that are pulling information off. And, and uh, I think Mudge at the time had come up with some pretty clever ways to be able to do that, uh, which is essentially to say, hey, there are going to be some indicators that something is is different. But that's kind of getting into the weeds here. But I think what we've talked about effectively is we've looked at endpoints, we've looked at servers, we've looked at our local network. What, what, do you, what, what do you do about the cloud? How about things that just aren't within our perimeter? Yeah, that starts to get a little bit trickier, right? Because it's very easy to use things that live for a long time. If I inventory a server that only exists for a year, I only have to revisit it once a year to make sure it's it's up to date. But if my server all of a sudden lives for only 15 minutes, that's a lot harder to inventory, right? I have to go Mm -hmm. and check all the time. And not only that, but does the server use dynamic IP addresses? So it's changing every time it comes into the network. Well, now could I have two different applications that use the same IP address? And that makes it another challenging thing if I'm just looking up one IP address. So what we're starting to see is a shift in a lot of the configuration management database systems, which is the generic term for these tools used to inventory all these systems from being something that required human input to being something that takes in sensor input. So these more cloud-native CMDB systems like what we see from a Jupyter One or Lucidium. And what they do is they have some type of a role or access where they query the data provider or they query the API behind your Nessus tool. So they're constantly getting new feeds of data and I think that's really going to be much more appropriate for the cloud with these, let's say, short-lived, dynamic, ephemeral instances that we encounter. Well, that's a very good point, because as we shift to the cloud, there's a lot of new paradigms that organizations have to embrace. First of all, the idea that the perimeter really isn't a perimeter anymore. And I, I think that if you take a look back It was um, Bill Cheswick back in the 90s who described the AT&T network as a hard, crunchy shell surrounding a soft, chewy center. And 
for organizations or enterprises that have relied primarily upon perimeter defenses up until now, um, that's, that's changed and it has to change as we look at incorporating clouds and letting our customers and our consumers come in and interact with our systems. But now from an asset inventory perspective and also from the access management perspective, it really changes the game entirely in that we have to worry about not only the provisioning of the systems that we think about, but of course the shadow IT takes on a whole new dimension up in the cloud when somebody goes ahead and spins up a virtual machine, uh, sends the bill to their corporate credit card, Every month they write it down as a $74.99 taxi fare or something so they don't have to turn in a receipt, uh, and then off we go. Yeah, shadow IT is is very difficult to, to combat. I think the biggest thing is it comes back to have you built the positive relationships from a human perspective that people are willing to talk to you? So not, a, not always do technical controls apply in here because if somebody procures completely out of your normal mechanisms, that's really hard to defend against. The other big problem that I'm seeing in this space is what exactly do you need to inventory, right? Historically, we might have just inventoried the URLs for our websites and mm -hmm. some IP addresses. But what we're seeing is that's not good enough anymore. And the classic example is the Equifax breach. Well, they got breached because they ran a bad version of Apache Struts. And that is an application library, right? So it's high up into your, your web application stack. Now, I would ask you, if you went to every company today and said, do you have a current inventory or software bill of material for every one of your applications on the application layers across your whole company, that would be a really hard ass for most companies. Well, that's, that's a very good point because up until now, a lot of times we're talking about our inventories as being at layer two and layer three in the data link layer and the network layer where we can look at MAC addresses, which are 48-bit uh, assigned addresses at the factory, first half of the 48 bits is the manufacturer code. And so as a result, uh, you can tell who manufactured that by just looking at what connects to your switch. And then of course at layer three with the IP addresses, which could either be the um, public addresses or if you will, the private address space. And most of us are probably running private address space on the inside. But then what you bring up is an entirely new dimension to everything. And it's going to be, what about, as you said, the software bill of materials for your applications? Sometimes you don't even know what the applications are. And then do they have to be mission critical applications? Because if there's a vulnerability that could be exploited to result in arbitrary code execution, for example, it doesn't have to be present on the most critical application in your enterprise. It just has to be present on the server or in the service that you're worried about. And this unimportant, trivial, maybe shadow IT thing all of a sudden becomes a huge backdoor. Um, so how do we start that process of backfilling that knowledge of, as you had described it, a software bill of materials for your applications? Sure. Let me give you just a, a quick story that I think will really resonate to folks. And you can use this as an example to sell it a little bit in your business. Mm -hmm. 
So my mom was a health inspector for many, many years. And one of the things I really loved hearing about is the story she would tell me of how bad some of these restaurants were. There was one pizza shop in Las Vegas that she told me about that it was during the winter time and they had pigeons fly into the air vents and during the winter to get warm. Mm -hmm. Well, what would happen is they'd get stuck in there and flies would come in and start eating the pigeons. And of course the flies make babies. So then you'd have maggots going down into the food prep facility. So when she started hearing complaints from customers, she did a ad hoc inspection on the, on the restaurant there, the, the pizza joint. And so she goes in and she starts talking to some of the food prep uh, workers. And she says, well, don't you have any quality control? Don't you have anybody looking for these things to see? Because we're seeing complaints and I'm sure they've also brought the complaints to you. And they said, well, it doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, can you imagine anybody wanting to go to a restaurant where they're getting maggots in their pizza because the software programmers or the food workers in this story know they're putting out bad bill of materials. So when you take that and, and you think about the software programmers in your environment, are they putting out your brand reputation, your financially significant applications? with known critical and high defects that would just disgust every customer if they knew you could be breached, if you they knew you could have confidentiality issues behind your applications. So when you have those things and you just understand how important that is, let's look at what you might do to give you a quick example. On your servers, you might install two types of agents. One would be a vuln management tool like Nessus or Aqualis. And what that is going to do is inventory the OS packages. It's also going to inventory any middleware packages. So anything that would open up a port right on your, your, your server, it would tell you, hey, you're running this version of Tomcat. You're running this version of Oracle. And you can use that to see if there are known uh, vulnerabilities against those uh, services. Mm -hmm. Now on the higher level application layers, what we see is two things. One is some type of a runtime application self-protection tool, like a contrast, a screen, or some other vendor in this space where they're going to install an agent and it's going to say, here's all the versions of Apache struts that you're running inside your, your version of software. The other way it is also commonly done is developers will have all of their code as part of their software build pipelines, and they will put it through something called a software composition analysis tool, which is it's going to scan it, look for versions of software that are bad that you're declaring. Mm -hmm. This is commonly done in tools like Sneak or Anchor when you're scanning a container image for vulnerabilities in libraries. So that can be another way you can do it in a build pipeline instead of requiring an agent on your box. Well, great. So now what I see then is that we've, with the, we've got the tool sets are out there. Obviously the vendors have provided that for us in those environments. Uh, and so for CISOs who have not yet had an opportunity to do if you will, this layer seven type of an inventory, it looks like you might have to just kind of draw a line 
in the sand and say, from here forward, we're going to implement this. So we start to accrue and accumulate your information. And as applications get modified or updated, et cetera, your database uh, will catch up. And then at some point, you're then just going to simply have some legacy systems, which you might need to go back and, and poke around at. Now, you'd mentioned the idea about using an older version of something or other. And, and typically, we say, well, what's the problem with an older version if I don't care about the newer feature sets? Uh, why don't I just keep using the old version? What's wrong with that? Well, I think we need to understand quality of software, right? Nobody wants to buy a lemon, right? And the same thing goes for software. And so when developers look at code, and when security looks at code, I think the problem today is we say, okay, let's just scan it with all of our vulnerability tools to see if there's a higher critical vulnerability. As long as you don't have that, you're good. Just push your code out. Well, the problem is just because it has no known vulnerabilities doesn't mean it doesn't have other types of vulnerabilities. So for example, you know, maybe I'm running the last version of a very old version of Windows, you know, it's unsupported by the vendor, right? Even if I didn't have vulnerabilities on that, I would still want vendor support with my software. And what we're seeing is when developers make internal patches and updates, maybe the, the developer behind a product identifies a memory leak. He's just going to push out another release that said made some bug fixes, right? And mm -hmm. you don't always understand how big those bug fixes were. But if you're not on the latest version of the software or maybe the latest version minus one, you're losing out to all of those availability defects that may have been addressed by being on a modern version of a software. Yeah, and, and features may come and features may go, but vulnerabilities accumulate. And so... As you had mentioned, older version like XP, Windows 10 does not have absolutely blank start from a blank piece of paper, rewrite everything. You look at the copyright notice, you know, Microsoft from 1981 until 2020. And so there is an awful lot of reused code. So what that means is this, when a newer version of either a product or even an operating system comes out with some patches that are announced for vulnerabilities that have been discovered, but the older version is not being maintained, immediately you can go through and say, hey, is this vulnerability associated with some common code? If the answer is yes, and the vendor says we're only supporting version two, not one, but one still has that vulnerability, now those running that out-of-date code are going to have an unpatched and a forever unpatched vulnerability. And as I say, those will start to accumulate over time. So if in April of 2014, you decided I was going to keep using XP, well, you're probably okay to May to June or whatever. But now almost seven years later, what you find out is that the risk for running your systems on that is just too great because there have been so many new vulnerabilities discovered, not because people are hacking away at old XP systems, it's not cost effective, but to hack away at Windows 10, find something that's a common component and things such as that. Yeah, I think this brings up some really good points. If we look at the industry, what are we seeing? We're going to see more people joining the professional mm -hmm. cyber workforce. 
which ultimately means we're going to have more people doing scans on software and finding more bugs and more vulnerabilities, which means every organization is going to have to patch faster and more things than they ever did before. Whereas, think about it this way. If you only had one researcher finding one vulnerability every three months, well, you would just need to patch every three months. Mm -hmm. But now if you have a thousand researchers just trying to go after uh, Chrome to find the latest vulnerability inside of the Chrome browser, you may have to have an organization that patches Chrome every 30 days or every seven days so that you're within an effective patch window for your organization. Yeah, and that, and that brings up an interesting point in terms of our, our patch cycle and the maturity model for that is that if at the highest level, what we're doing is we're doing a continuous patching. We're scanning uh, for opportunities for availabilities of patching. We're gonna make a risk-based decision based on the criticality of our systems. And then we're going to go ahead and uh, get those things fixed as quickly as we can. Well, a couple items come out of that. Number one is, is traditionally we rely on vendors to have a periodic release schedule and, and Microsoft to make things fairly easy has gone with their Super Patch Tuesday model, which is the second Tuesday of every month, boom, here are all your patches. And then for a while, both the functionality and the security patches were all merged together and some things would break and people would complain, hey, you broke my system, I don't want to do this, but they couldn't unbundle the security patches, which you really, really needed with perhaps some of the feature patches, which they might've been able to defer. So Microsoft has allowed that to split out. And in fact, you can defer uh, the installation of these things for a while, if you like. But that sets up then the concept of a race condition. And the race condition is against the enterprise performing their patching based upon the release from the vendor, like Patch Tuesday, and then what we euphemistically call Exploit Wednesday, which is the day afterward when people have had a chance to go ahead and play with that uh, those patches, try to reverse engineer where did it come from, and in the worst case, somebody uploads a little script to Metasploit so that by the 24 hours later, script kitties around the world can try to run an exploit. So what do we then do to be able to balance the need of being able to patch now, now, now versus the danger of a patch that could break things in the enterprise? And I think that all comes back to what we're talking about is having a really solid asset inventory that not just simply lists here are my servers, here are my endpoints, here's my applications, here's my OSs and versions, but what's the criticality to the enterprise so I can have some sort of a strategy to go ahead and test, if you will, these patches before I go live in the event they break things. That criticality is so key. And this is one of the key attributes of a good configuration management database. Example, in almost every CMDB system that I've seen, you will typically see a couple fields. One is who is the business owner? Who is the system owner? So one owns the data and it may be the marketing organization that has the sales data. And then who is the engineer behind the system who's actually going to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. Additionally, you're going to see fields to classify your data right? Is it uh, unclassified secret or top secret data if you're in the DOD space? But if you're in the commercial sector, it might show something like, is it a 
PII or personally identifiable information where you have to do privacy requirements? Is it a SOX application where you, you have to meet some type of additional controls because it's your financially significant application? Is it a PCI or payment card industry application where we have uh, essentially the credit card numbers that people are very sensitive about or HIPAA data? And, and it goes on, but you would want to make sure you call out your critical or crown jewel systems by an attribute so that if you're going to prioritize remediation, not every application is the same and the ones with the most critical data or could cause significant issues across your company are treated first. And, and last but not least, I'll give you one other attribute you really want to include. Is this asset internet facing or not? Because if it is, the amount of attackers who would have a higher likelihood to target your systems goes up exponentially. And that's a good point. And again, we asked the question about internet facing. And then most of the time we figure, hey, we're good. We know we've configured it this way. This is lower risk. It's internal, et cetera. But for anybody who's worked with the search engine Shodan, Shodan.io, what that is, is not a search engine like a typical search engine for Google, where you're going to say, here's the content of a website, but rather what it's looking at is the banner pages of systems when you connect. And what you'll find out is there is a surprising number of internet facing systems that the owners believed were not facing the internet. So one of the things that I recommend is get a Shodan account. And by the way, I believe at least they have for the last two years, they run a really good deal on Black Friday, the day after American Thanksgiving, where I think you get a lifetime license for only five US dollars. But what you can do is go search for your own stuff. And some people say, well, wait a minute, why would I go to an evil hacker engine and enter in my own uh, names of my systems because aren't I telling them what is important to me? I said, well, you know what? If it's in their database anyway, somebody else can search for it and find it. You better go find it yourself. And so I think, Ross, you pointed out that this business criticality prioritization, internet-facing prioritization, and also the compliance-related prioritization. We might find out that all three of those become very, very important things to include in our inventory to make sure that we're keeping track of the right issues. So not only are we simply tracking technical vulnerabilities with the CBE database or looking at patch updates, but we're then relating it to other areas as well. Another key aspect that we want to think about, how do we have a good inventory around, is our disaster recovery and business continuity practices. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, today what you might see is, what's your coop plan, right? If this system goes offline, how do you respond, right? How do you have network diagrams that show what this system is connected to so that if we have a availability issue on the system, we can look at what are the possible causes to roll a system back, right? Maybe it wasn't your system. Maybe it was one of your tier one dependencies that changed a firewall rule that blocked your system from working. So having those different types of, of DR or COOP things are really important to securing your application as we we go uh, into being forward-looking and being COVID-ready in these examples. Oh, yeah. Now, of course, when you talk about 
continuity of operations, disaster recover, and things like that, not everybody's going to be where they need to be because, well, well, it's a disaster. People might get trapped out of position, et cetera. So what, do you, what should also be in our systems that allows us to make sure that uh, we don't end up with a system uh, where we're trying to find somebody like Bueller, Bueller, um, who owns a system? Who can do something about it? What, what should we do about that? Yeah, the biggest point here is your CMDB system needs to be able to drive remediation. And what we're seeing here is kind of two things, right? A trivial level is let's just list the system owners so that we can call people when we see the system has issues. But a more effective way is how could I actually assign tickets and alerts to people, right? So hey, if your system now has a new vulnerability identified by Nessus or Qualys on it, wouldn't you want the developer to get an email that says such and such version of software has now identified a critical vuln, you have 15 days to do a timely patch that is consistent with your information security policy. Now you've taken out of the responsibility for having security go and, and talk to every person individually, which doesn't scale, and turn that into an automated alert system to really help people and organizations identify the risk to their systems that's unique for them and given them as much lead time as possible to fix. Yeah, so we're covering an awful lot of ground here, and I think that's great. Uh, and so we've looked at the software assets, we've looked at the hardware assets, we've looked at the network, the enterprise, we looked at devices that can connect and managing those. Uh, we've also looked at the idea of compliance and criticality and now ownership. Uh, and so all of this gives us a really comprehensive view of what we want to go ahead and take care of. But one of the interesting things that we probably need to also worry about is not just the applications, not just the software, not just the hardware, but how about the data and more precisely sensitive information and then media that contains sensitive information. Does that belong in our library as well? Yeah, that's a really good point. Typically what you'll see is systems or are trying to meet some compliance agenda and what they'll do is they'll say, okay, we need to make sure all of our data is masked or all of our data is encrypted at rest. And at the beginning, an organization won't have that, right? They'll have to slowly change those little settings and configurations to make it that way. And so what ultimately you have to think about is, did I get to 100% or did I only get to 90% of this? And how do I know if this risk is going to come back and bite me? Because I thought we were done two years ago when we did this initiative and everybody told me it was closed. But then poor Bobby, the intern, didn't know about the initiative six months later and opened up a whole can of worms for the organization, right? So how do you have ways to track things? And then how do you have ways to actually ensure that you remain compliant with your asset inventory that you thought you have? So here, here's a, probably the $64 question here. We've talked about ways and mechanisms, and there's plenty of software tools out there that are fairly mature for maintaining all of these 
inventories, my hardware inventory, my software inventory, even if you will, the bill of materials of things that go into custom software. Are those tools appropriate and sufficient to track sensitive data and including media? Or is that a completely orthogonal problem that has to be addressed with a separate set of tools? Yeah, so not every system or process is going to work perfectly for every type of tool. One thing we might see is we might have really good ways to identify all of our hardware, but your organization is not going to go to the microscopic level. So what I mean by that is maybe you track every laptop or you track every phone that's issued. Are you tracking every cable that came with that laptop? Probably not. How about every USB device inside your organization? Okay, so I might have a lot of loose USB devices running around. Well, who might be approved to use USB devices and how can we really limit the privilege of that, let's say, administrator capability to a certain select number of individuals? And when you don't do those things, you can see just how USB could be really, really painful as it has been with some of the attacks against the Pentagon and other corporations. And when poor Bobby the intern finds the USB device in the parking lot and plugs it in because it looks like it had a free cool game on it. Well, things like that are where effective asset management Tying that into privileges and and access management is so key for an organization. Yeah, so now what we find then is a combination of knowing what's there, policies, which are going to be administrative controls that people should be listening to and following that we can enforce with technical controls. For example, being able to block USB devices going into a system and sending an alert. And so, for example, in my enterprise, anytime somebody sticks a, a USB device in, then to their device, they're going to go like, hey, I'm going to get an alert as a CISO, and eh, maybe that person is going to get a visit or a call from me. Uh, first time is, of course, hey, do you understand this isn't what you're supposed to be doing? Second and multiple times, it's going to be have to escalate. Now, again, if we're protected, we're protected. Yeah, so I think this has been a fantastic show, and it talks about some of the key technical topics you need to understand as a CISO. You can't just be the PM, right? There's a lot of different roles where you can be effective, and hopefully as you learn some more of these technical competencies, you'll be a more technical, competent CISO with effective CISO tradecraft. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed our show. Please subscribe to the podcast. We'll have more fun topics like this coming in and we appreciate your time. Have a great day. Take care.